This week, we get real on the cost of living crisis. Where is inflation coming from? Will there be another interest rate rise? And we get real on Indigenous issues in Australia. What are we doing to fix the actual problems now that the political nonsense is over? And where are things heading in the Middle East? And as the Prime Minister gets fawned over in Washington, what does it all mean for Australia? We need to get ready to stomach some tough times ahead. It's a packed show this week, so hang on for the ride. G'day Perth, g'day Adelaide, g'day Australia. This is episode 229 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday night, October the 27th, 2023. I'm Damien Curry and welcome to your news summary of the week here on ADH-TV. Our look back on the news of the week without the woke getting you smart for the weekend and the week ahead. First up this week, of all the footage that I've scoured through for the show this week, I found this interview the most compelling. So I want to put some clips from it at the top of the show. We'll be talking in more detail about the Israel-Hamas war in a moment. But this week on America's NBC News was an interview with a survivor of the terrorist massacre at the music festival in Israel that left more than 200 young people murdered. Jewish-American Natalie Sanandaji gave NBC a detailed account of her escape. Well, the rockets, as you know, started at around 6.30 a.m. I happened to have been resting by the campsite, by the festival grounds at that time. One of uh, the girls that I was with came over to alert me of what was happening at the time. The way she described what was happening with such calmness she came up to me she said that a few rockets had been intercepted overhead but it's fine it's normal for the area that we're in it happens at first we thought maybe the rockets would stop the festival would continue but obviously after a few minutes as the rockets kept coming we realized that this was a slightly different situation than the norm Eventually, the festival security had turned off the music and asked everyone to please evacuate to their cars. On the way to our car, I had asked my friends if I could stop and use the bathroom. In my head, I thought, at this point, we didn't know that there were terrorists on ground, on foot, with guns. We thought it was just rockets, and we figured it would take a while to get out. There were thousands of kids trying to get out at the same time. I asked if I could go to the bathroom. My friends said, yes, go and then meet us at the car. A few days ago, I saw a video that had surfaced of the terrorists coming to those exact bathrooms and just shooting at every stall, trying to kill anyone who was inside. That was one of the moments where it hit me the hardest, where I really realized how close I was to death. If I was in those bathrooms moments later, I might not be here today. Once we got to our cars, the festival security did everything that they could to escort everyone out safely. Most of them died doing their job. We all started driving in one direction and eventually the festival security had asked everyone to pull over to the side of the road and get out of their cars and start running. Mm -hmm. And at first we couldn't understand why they would give us such directions. But once we pulled over our cars, that's when we heard the first gunshots. And it, it automatically occurred to us that being in our cars and being 
in such a confined space with so many cars was making us an easy target for the terrorists. Mm. We opened our car doors and we just started to run. Kids were running in every direction. Nobody knew which way was the way to safety. Natalie told NBC News that one of the most terrifying things was thinking that you were running to safety, but after a while seeing other young people running towards you, thinking they were running to safety, and then having to make a split second decision about which direction to keep running in. I remember me and my friends passed by a ditch with a number of kids hiding inside from the terrorists and they told us to get in the ditch with them and to hide. And we almost did until one of my friends said, this is a bad idea. If we hide in this ditch and the terrorists find us and they're surrounding us from above, we have nowhere to run. That's it, we're, we're done for. We decided to keep running and we later found out that the kids who did stay behind and hid in the ditch were shot and killed. Natalie was rescued along with her friends by a local resident from a nearby town who used his ute to pick up kids and take them back to town safely. He apparently did that a number of times in an act of incredible heroism, saving many young lives. So what does Natalie want people to know about the war that has resulted from these sickening and depraved attacks? I think a lot of people are making this about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that has been going on for years. That's not what this is about. This isn't about Israel versus Palestine. This is about Israel versus a terrorist organization. This is about Israel and the Jewish people versus Hamas. Hamas is just as complicit in the deaths of innocent Palestinians as they are in the deaths of innocent Israelis. They're using the citizens of Gaza as their own human shields. And I think that's what people need to understand is that we have one common enemy. And that when we come together and realize that, we'll have more of a chance of defeating this enemy. That's Hamas terrorism attack survivor, Jewish American Natalie Sanandaji, speaking with NBC News in the US this week. We'll have more on the Israel and Palestine story later and we'll hear the thinking of people on both sides of the current conflict in Gaza. But first, let's look at some of the other news of the week from closer to home. Well, here's something you'd never have noticed if we didn't tell you. Inflation is up. Here's how Channel 7 reported the latest inflation data when it was released on Thursday afternoon. The latest inflation data has just been released. The number plays a key role in the Reserve Bank's next move on interest rates. So live to our political reporter Isabel Mullen. Isabel, what does the data reveal? And good morning. Quarterly inflation has jumped by 1.2%, taking the annual inflation figure to 5.4%. There are a number of challenging economic circumstances impacting inflation at the moment. The war in the Middle East making petrol more expensive, which in turn makes everyday items like groceries harder to transport and store, which means we end up paying more at the checkout. True, it does. But... See how the war in the Middle East has now replaced the war in Ukraine as the official excuse for inflation? Wars are a factor, but not a major one. The real reasons are much more long-term, much more obvious, and have been coming for a long time. We'll explain that in a sec. In the meantime, don't be fooled by the politicians' spin. The rate of inflation has come down a little bit, but 
Inflation still happening and it's still high at 5.4% for the year to the end of September. And that's the official figures. Unofficially, you can feel it. It's much worse. We know that for services and petrol and electricity, it's more than that. Take out the government's subsidies that are keeping prices artificially low for some items like rent and electricity, which we will still have to pay for in the long run through taxes. Nothing's free. We don't get any free lunches. Those subsidies have to be paid for eventually. And inflation is big and it is hurting people. One way a government can control inflation is by letting its central bank raise interest rates. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, right? Because if interest rates go up, things you've got to pay more on your mortgage. But what it does, it's supposed to reduce spending. So reducing demand for goods and services. And when there's lower demand for goods and services, we have less money to spend because money's more expensive because interest rates have gone up. When there's less money to spend, people aren't spending, then there's lower demand, right? And if there's lower demand, prices are supposed to go down. And the Reserve Bank governor, the new one, has made it clear that she will raise rates in a heartbeat if she has to. More from Channel 7's Isabella Mullen. The new Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock, has warned it could take longer to get inflation under control than previously expected, saying another rate hike might be needed. But there are risks that could see inflation return to target more slowly than currently forecast. And the board won't hesitate to raise the cash rate further if there's a material upward revision to the outlook for inflation. That's how Channel 7 reported on things uh, in the morning of the day that the uh, inflation data was released. So we could get another rate rise on Melbourne Cup Day when the Reserve Bank next meets. I always chuckle when people complain about inflation, but not with much delight, just with sadness. Those of you who were followers of this show back in 2021 in our pre-ADH days on Discernible will remember us warning time and time again before the federal election that debt was out of control because of the Morrison government's reckless overspending during COVID. Its failure to rein in state premiers who were drunk on power and out of control with their spending and its lack of a balanced measured crisis response plan. There were no shortage of loudmouthed left-wing critics in the Labor, Green, Teal and even Liberal Party who were screaming about how all we cared about was the economy and we didn't understand the deeper, more sensitive issues about people's health. That's when I realised for the first time that we've got a real problem in this country. If people were so ignorant about how our economy works, what our system of liberal democracy is and how it actually operates, that they thought that the economy and people's health were two separate things instead of completely intertwined as they actually are, then we're in serious cultural trouble. And that's partly why I decided to start the other side. The other phenomenon that amazes me is the rush to net zero. This idea that we'll eliminate carbon usage or at least neutralize it somehow simply by shutting down our coal plants and industry and reliance on other fossil fuels without any consideration of the consequences is also extremely childish and an ignorant worldview. Even if you accept the scientific modelling from the agencies that have a vested interest in the climate control industry and you think we do need to wean ourselves off fossil fuel, it is plain as day that without China and India leading the way, there's absolutely nothing 
Australia can do to have any impact. All we're doing by closing half of the 16 coal-fired power stations we have, while China continues to approve the building of two of the things a week, new ones, is ridiculous. As this recent article in Hong Kong's English language daily, the South China Morning Post reports, China's coal-fired spree continues at a frantic pace. It's as if they're trying to get in and build as many as possible before 2030 when they have to start winding them back. In the first half of 2023, they've maintained the previous pace of two plants per week, according to that report. Australia has 16 coal-fired plants. We plan to close seven of them by 2035. Why are we doing this? Why are we bothering? I mean, sure, as a developed nation, it might be a nice thing that we're experimenting with renewables and trying to get the industry going and doing our bit for the rest of the world. I'm all for risk-taking and innovation and thinking big and leading. But simultaneously shooting yourself in the foot by cutting off your own reliable baseload energy supply is idiotic in the extreme. And it's not just the inflation that it causes and all the social and health problems that go along with that. It's the defense risk it creates too. So what's actually going on here? Well, what's going on is that people aren't thinking clearly. Voters aren't thinking clearly. Why is that? Well, I blame 20 to 40 years of very poor school education and a decline in media opinion diversity. The only diversity that really counts. People are accepting all the nice sounding stuff about net zero and they accepted all the nice sounding stuff from our governments about saving us all from COVID, which for a remote island nation that had cut itself off from the rest of the world had very little risk to begin with. People accept all that stuff. They want to believe we can fix things. And the politicians and governments and media respond accordingly. No major political party has the guts to stand up and say, uh, this is bonkers guys. It's the emperor's new clothes because nobody would vote for them. No old mainstream media outlet has the guts to go against the grain because people will switch off. And then there's the ridicule. If you argue against the majority, you will be mocked in Australia. Well, now the chickens have come home to roost. Who knew? We did. The alternative independent media knew. The rebel doctors who were shut down by government agencies threatening their livelihoods and registration and licenses. The few people in the fossil fuel industry who could still be bothered to keep fighting. The proponents of the nuclear industry saying, hey everyone, this nuclear power ban is kind of nuts and silly now. The technology is safer and better than ever and it's clean. Hello, can we have some nuclear? We all knew. And basically Labor, the Greens, the ABC, the Guardian newspaper, the universities, woke high school teachers, educated in those universities by woke professors, who are now teaching your kids, by the way, all of these people and institutions lied to you. They misled you and they were wrong. And they continue to be wrong on COVID management and net zero. And the massive pain we are feeling now and will continue to feel for years to come with prices skyrocketing while wages don't is all about COVID and net zero. It's not about the war in the Middle East. Now, this is a global problem, but 
in the shooting yourself in the foot with dumb policies game, Australia is possibly the world leader. Now, with the economy slowing as businesses continue to suffer and fold, with unemployment inevitably rising as a result, with no exports to bring needed money into Australia because we're shutting down coal and gas and our iron ore isn't the gold mine it once was, meaning that the only thing that we have left to sell to the world is our country itself, and so now we have to rely on population increase to keep our GDP growing, and this population increase has to be achieved by having the unsustainable levels of immigration that we have now, nearly half a million in the past year, that's astronomical, that's like America taking in six million people, that's all gonna lead to more economic, housing and social problems. All of this is because we don't think properly and we don't vote well. We're getting exactly what we deserve with $2.50 petrol and unaffordable housing and wages not moving anywhere. So if you voted Labor, Teal, or especially if you voted Green, do not complain. You asked for this. You wanted this. You labelled anyone who tried to convince you otherwise cookers and right-wing nutjobs and made us feel ashamed and belittled us for saying, uh, hey, you know, the economy actually matters. Working hard actually matters. Not wasting government money on crazy government initiatives actually matters. Good government management and efficiency actually matters. Not having a bloated public service matters. Cheap energy matters. Supporting business instead of criticising it matters. Letting people who own those businesses hire and fire whoever they think is best to do the job matters a lot to everything. Diversity of opinion in education matters. Diversity of opinion on our media matters. Free speech matters. So it turns out we, and you, most of the people who watch this show, were right. And now we're paying the price for the majority of Aussies not voting with their heads, but too much with their hearts. Forgetting that to use your brain properly is to have heart. The voice vote is a massive relief because it seems maybe Aussies are starting to wake up to that fact, to understand that they have to look behind the nice, easy slogans of the left, the over-simplistic, childish and irresponsible worldview of the left. We just want to save lives. Yeah, no kidding. We all just want to save lives. But looking at the immediate problems without considering all the long-term consequences and impacts intended and unintended doesn't save lives. It puts them at risk. So the next time a friend or relative complains about inflation, ask them, did you vote Green, Teal or Labor? And then tell them to accept what they voted for. And if they don't like it, maybe think better before the next election. The arrogance of the Australian left was on full display this week and it's shown a lot of Aussies who were sceptical or sitting on the fence that indeed we do have a very big cultural problem in this country. What we saw was a group of Australians who didn't get their way in a free and fair democratic process throw a massive hissy fit. It started with comments from the far left, people like Thomas Mayo on election night. We have seen a disgusting uh, no campaign, a campaign that has been dishonest, that has lied to the Australian people and I'm sure that will come out in the analysis. Uh, I'm sure that history will reflect poorly on Peter Dutton, uh, Pauline Hanson, uh, all of those that have opposed this. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know what's next but um, 
but uh, it's just devastating. Do you feel anger towards the Australian public? You spoke, I can hear anger in your voice right now. I'm not angry at the Australian public. Uh, I think that the Australian public were ready for this. I disagree when people say that that they weren't. Uh, I disagree that this was a bad idea uh, because I know that we needed that foundational change, you know, to be recognised uh, and to have a guaranteed representative body. Not politicians that uh, purport to speak for us, uh, like the one that we've just heard. Uh, not having political parties choose Indigenous people for us, but having us choose our, our, our leaders ourselves. We got that right. Uh, I'm not blaming the Australian people at all, but who I do blame and who I hope that um, the Australian people will look very closely at the next time they have a say in this democracy about who our leadership is. I hope they look at who lied to the Australian people. I think Albanese um, was courageous. I think he was empathetic. I think he genuinely wanted this change uh, and he has done the right thing by putting it to the people. So it's not his fault, it's not the Australian people's fault, it's the people that have lied uh, to us, to the Australian people. They are the ones that we should be blaming. Okay, that was Thomas Mayo, union organiser and self-confessed supporter of, of communists, speaking to the ABC's Indigenous reporter Isabella Higgins on election night. Higgins then appeared on a very lopsided panel on the Insiders show on the ABC on the following Sunday morning, the morning after, and explained that the reason that Yes lost was because those of us who voted No couldn't get our tiny little brains around the details. It was a difficult proposal, I think, for some people to get their heads around. I think for those who perhaps don't understand the lives of Indigenous Australians, who don't understand the inequity, the challenges, to then try and understand this proposal and how that could potentially fix some of these things, it was too much for them to get their head around. Ah, there's nothing like a uh, privileged inner city person with a private schoolgirl accent telling the rest of us that we're all just a little too dumb to understand all the details. You got that? You're not smart enough and you couldn't have possibly carefully considered the details. You didn't read the Uluru statement. You didn't look at the 26-page document 14 that accompanied it or that was the Uluru Statement, or maybe wasn't, I don't know, I can't work it out now. Uh, you didn't consider the text of the Chapter 9 that they wanted to add to the Constitution? If you didn't, well, you don't watch the other side, because we did all that with a constitutional lawyer and other experts. Nope, you're just dumb if you voted no. But it got a lot worse. Listen to this for a veiled threat from Isabella Higgins the ABC taxpayer-funded journalist who is supposed to be committed to some degree of objectivity and detachment, even when providing commentary. When I was talking to people throughout this campaign, they said our communities won't stop running if this is a no vote. But I think it's also been the conventional wisdom in our communities that when we're talking about reconciliation, we use kind language, we're generous, we extend the hand of friendship, we invite people in to share our culture. And I think if we look at the campaign messaging around The Voice, it was similar to that. So I think this failing, this being rejected so categorically by all Australians, it will change the way Indigenous Australians want to interact with the rest of the country. It will change whether kindness is the best approach. I think often in the community it is well understood that black anger is not tolerated and so we see leaders 
pull in their rage, pull in their sadness and constantly use language of generosity, use graciousness to try and appeal to the Australian people. And after this, I think there will be a generation of leaders who have been burnt by this and who won't be interested in doing that anymore. Hmm. Interesting. I must have missed all that kindness. All I heard was you're a racist if you vote no and basically that we're all a pack of liars trying to misrepresent reality. Talk about gaslighting. A few points to note on that comment. She doesn't speak for the Aboriginal community. The Aboriginal community itself carries a wide range of views and it's racist and patronising to suggest otherwise. And she's talking there about what the extreme left within Aboriginal communities and their non-Indigenous supporters on the extreme left think and feel. She went on to say that she would expect that the black sovereignty movement of people like former Green Senator Lydia Thorpe will get bigger after this. I would not be surprised if more people push towards that message that comes from Lydia Thorpe about not engaging so much with mainstream Australia, not bowing to them, um, challenging the Australian regime. And of course there will be anger. I think even if you weren't a card-carrying yes voter in the Indigenous community, to see the vote, to see Australians reject this so categorically, that's really hard to feel, to experience. The whole debate was very uncomfortable. It felt like at times the worth of an Indigenous life was being debated. So I think the message from people like Lydia Thorpe, the message around black sovereignty will appeal more after yeah, this. Very few people on the no side that I spoke to, in fact, nobody that I spoke to, indicated they didn't want the best for Indigenous Aussies. We voted no because we didn't want a divided country, a two-tier formalised system of political representation and access, privilege based upon race in a very diverse multicultural country is a bad idea. That is why we voted no. Let's be clear. These people are bullies. They tried to bully us into voting yes, we rejected that, not 55-45, but 61-39. And they now say that they will continue their bullying. They don't want to meet anyone halfway, they want to double down. But remember, these people are not the Australian Aboriginal community. They are a radical and powerful subset of the self-appointed leadership of that community. They are unanimously left-wing in ideology and they tend to be quite radical and extreme in that left-wing view. There's a very radical left-wing political lobbying organisation that is highly organised called GetUp. The CEO of GetUp is this woman, Larissa Baldwin-Roberts. She's a prominent Indigenous activist and she seems to think it's appropriate to draw parallels between Indigenous Australians and Palestinians. She appeared on the ABC's Q&A show this week and called for an immediate ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. There is, I was, for First Nations people, there is an incredible solidarity that exists here. And we are talking about securing a, a free future for Palestine. We're going to talk about the freedom to continue your language, your culture, and not just to survive, but to thrive as people. And so for First Nations people, we, you know, the day after a devastating referendum loss are out there um, campaigning and protesting and calling for peace. I think if Larissa looks into it a bit, she'll find that the question of who actually were the First Nations people in that part of the world is the question. She seems to have picked a side, however, given what she chose to wear. Even Pat's Carvelis couldn't ignore it. 
Larissa, your scarf, um, I can't not notice it. You obviously um, feel pretty strongly about this issue. Yep. Um, there were big protests on the weekend of people who clearly feel similarly. Obviously, there might be different views across the spectrum. Different views across the spectrum. How odd it is to see the ABC being so balanced on an issue. Let's take a closer look at that scarf and what it means, shall we? The New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies tweeted this image this week, explaining that the words on the left say, Jerusalem is ours. The words on the right say, Palestine. And the map below it is a map of modern day Israel. Get the picture? Israel does not exist in this picture. This is not a two-state solution of compromise scarf, a living side-by-side -side in peace scarf. It's a go-away completely scarf. The Australian Jewish Association then followed up with a tweet of these two images side-by-side -side, saying the scarf is not a Palestinian scarf, it's a Hamas scarf often worn by terrorist leaders. This picture on the right shows Hamas leader Ishmael Hanaya wearing the same scarf at a meeting in Turkey in 2018. This scarf is far more offensive to Jewish people than the scarf that Senator Lydia Thorpe, formerly of the Greens, wore in Parliament on Monday after the voice vote as she also pushed the false narrative likening Australia's Aborigines to Palestinians. The world jumped up and down, condemning, supporting, sympathising with the occupier. The blathered double standard is shameful. As a First Nations woman, Sarah's words ring all too true to me. Palestinians live with a generational trauma of oppression and dispossession. They continue to fight for sovereignty, liberation and land back as do First Peoples of this country. Colonisation and dispossession is not a thing of the past. You just read up in the history books. They are ongoing violent processes happening right now. This stuff is truly sick. It's muddied false thinking. And the problem is that many of our kids are lapping it up because they don't know any better. We'll talk more about Israel and Palestine later in the show, but let's bring this back to the Australian context and the voice. The radical left see no positives from British colonisation, no positives from modernisation. They reject European history and values completely. They fantasise about some kind of indigenous utopia and eco-heaven that apparently existed before colonisation. It's a complete nonsense. Normal everyday Australians called them out on that in the referendum by voting no to the terrible idea of creating a two-tiered political system. When they don't get their own way by peaceful means, they start threatening about not being very peaceful anymore. Their self-righteous entitlement is off the charts. And what we're seeing is a tantrum of narcissists. After a week of the noisiest silence I think I've ever heard, we get a bizarre statement from a subset of the subset. Not even all the radicals were on board with this one. It was signed by nobody, really, but purporting to be a statement of yes leaders, organisations and community members, basically slinging more hate and accusations of racism, ignorance and lying at no voters. So what did it say? 
This statement said it was now clear that no constitutional change recognising Indigenous Australians would ever succeed. It talked about the occupation of an Australia that belonged to Indigenous people. It said we do not for one moment accept that this country is not ours. Well nobody said the country isn't yours, it's just that it's not only yours anymore. Nobody has come forward to put their name to this statement, which makes me wonder why the news media, any of us, are even giving it the time of day. But it was posted online Sunday night by the Aboriginal activist Alira Davis. And it went on to say that it is the, quote, legitimacy of the non-Indigenous occupation in this country that requires recognition, not the other way around. Our sovereignty has never been ceded. Well, I hope this really does wake some people up to the dangers that lurk behind performative ceremonies like the Welcome to Country. These are not just nice things to do, nice token symbolism. They're a deliberate attempt to weaken the sense of entitlement that non-Indigenous Australians feel that they have to this country. I think it's time for a little truth-telling of our own now. The wars of colonisation or occupation, call it whatever you like, between the English and the Aborigines of the 18th and early 19th centuries have been fought. They're over. The English actually won. In the subsequent 200 years, that's seven or eight generations, Australia has grown into a nation of 27 million people of many and varied cultures and histories. This nation certainly belongs to all of us not just those whose ancestors happened to tread the land first historically. And the country also belongs to all of us since we adopted the British rule of law and property rights 200 years ago. And as far as I know, there isn't anyone walking around alive today who's much over 105 years old. Some more truth-telling. Aboriginal Australians are among the luckiest and most privileged so-called First Nations people on the planet when it comes to opportunity. We have shifted plenty in the direction of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. Not that we have to consider that a standard, by the way. We as Australians have never voted on it. And if we will determine, sorry, we will determine our own standards for our own country, thank you. But Aboriginal Australians live in one of the world's most egalitarian liberal democracies, thanks to the British systems that the nation was founded under and the work done by all of us, including Aboriginal Australians, with different ancestors since. This nation has seen people come here from other impoverished and war-torn countries and grow to build lives full of richness of all kinds because of our systems, because of our kindness, our Judeo-Christian values, and our strong sense of fairness, compassion, and goodwill. We spend double the amount of taxpayer money per head on Australians who claim to be Indigenous than non-Indigenous. Double. Let that sink in. So if I were an Aboriginal Australian mourning the referendum result, I'd be asking myself a few questions. So in response to your letter of 12 points, anonymous Aboriginal leaders who don't actually represent Aboriginal people but are just a bunch of lefties and communists, here's six questions for you to consider. Firstly, what people on earth do not have a bloody history and gross injustice in their ancestry and have had to learn to let it go, look forward and build lives of peace and prosperity? Secondly, while we acknowledge the bad things about colonisation, what are the benefits that have been brought to all of us by European colonisation of this land in the late 18th century? Where would we be now if it hadn't happened? 
Thirdly, what are the benefits that have come specifically from British European colonisation compared to other possible European, Middle Eastern or Asian colonisers? Fourthly, what might have happened to us in World War I and World War II had it not been for the defence of the Anzacs and our own Aboriginal ancestors who were themselves Anzacs? Fifthly, what appreciation have I shown lately for the generosity of the Australian government in terms of the fact that on average we get double the share of the pie that non-Indigenous Aussies do per capita? And finally, the sixth thing that I think these Aboriginal left-wing so-called leaders should ask themselves, here's a question for the educated and well-off middle-class socialist leaders of that, uh, that group. What have I done lately to help myself and to help other people of all races have a happy, better, healthier and wealthier life in this wonderful country that is modern Australia? How have I contributed to Australian society and community and business in a meaningful and constructive way. Taking the focus off me, 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 and take, 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 and putting it onto others and giving. So, what about the real underlying issues? Lost in the politics and the battle for power is the real problem. You never hear Thomas Mayo's of the world talking about the actual problems within remote Indigenous communities. My fellow ADH TV host, Fred Paul, whose show runs every Monday night at 8pm, spoke to the Shadow Indigenous Australians Minister, Senator Jacinta Price, this week and addressed some of those real issues. It was a moving segment and I really urge everyone to watch it in full. As with all of our shows, it's up on demand on our site here at adh.tv. Here's a snip. Well, there are few issues that expose the sickening hypocrisy of Labor and the Greens as starkly as the issue of child sexual abuse in remote Aboriginal communities. The people who most desperately need a voice, the children trapped in remote towns and communities, would not have got a look in. So last week, after the voice referendum was rejected, Jacinta Nampajinpa Price rose in the Senate and proposed that these poor, lonely, frightened and abused kids get an official voice of their own. Nampajinpa Price. Thank you, um, Mr. President. I rise today to speak on the urgent need for Prime Minister Albanese and the Labor government to support the Coalition's call for a Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. Audit spending on Indigenous programs and support practical policy ideas to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians to help close the gap. It is beyond sickening that Labor and the Greens span this into a political issue rather than a compassionate one and turned it down. They turned it down. It sure is sick. Token virtue signalling nonsense like the welcome to country, the Uluru statement, the voice to parliament. Ah, oh, we're all for that. But when someone says, hang on a sec, you've already got enough people, resources and a big enough bureaucracy and enough funding to fix the real problems. Why don't you just shut up and get on with it? Then Labor, the Teals and the Greens are all, oh no, we don't want actual solutions. Folks, we made the right decision on the 14th of October. The people who make up the Aboriginal industry don't want real solutions because then they'd be out of a job.
But the real problems were identified 22 years ago and they tragically remain. It's alarming that we still know so little about what these kids are enduring. In 2001, New South Wales Liberal Senator Bill Heffernan visited remote communities in New South Wales and Queensland and reviewed what little literature existed then to compile a report called Child Sexual Abuse in Rural and Remote Australian Indigenous Communities. What he found was a stain on Australia. He found that sexual abuse of children often went on for years. The offenders included government employees working with the Child Protection Department. Let that sink in. Aboriginal land councils, high-profile Aboriginal leaders and unemployed men. They could be Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Many of them were outsiders who visited the communities, ingratiating themselves and then taking the opportunity when it arose. Stories of predators suddenly leaving town once they were exposed were common. It is truly sickening stuff. Fred goes into a lot more of the details. I said I really do recommend checking the whole segment out. This next bit is a bit confronting, but I think we need to hear it. It's a complete battle, um, an ongoing battle and a system that needs absolute um, it needs exposure, it needs to be reviewed, it needs to be reformed, uh, and Indigenous kids, you know, need to stop being left mm. to rot in dysfunction. Well, I mean, I have to ask, how's your niece Ruby going? You mentioned her in the Senate. She testified against her own father who raped her at the age of 15 mm. and, and uh, mm. two years later testified against him. How's she coping? So she's now living in another part of the country, living a relatively private life away from sort of trying to have very little contact with any family, um, you know, which is tough. She's now got her own um, child uh, and, a, and, a, and a loving partner now. But, you know, it was just, just I, I remember sitting through that court case in support of her case and um, in those circumstances to avoid, you know, children giving, having to give evidence in front of a perpetrator in a courtroom, they provide, provide video evidence to the court. So watching the video in the court of her 13-year-old cousin talking about, um, you know, being present in the room while Ruby was being raped by her father. It's just, it's just, you know, you, you can't, I mean, that is true courage. That is real courage when a child goes through that and, and does that and stands up. And it just, you know, it's, it's just, I just am beside myself that, that a whole a government and a, um, political party would deny those children the opportunity for their voices to be heard if they're brave enough to do that why wouldn't we want to hear from them as to how we're going to prevent abuse from occurring in the future yep it's time for a real voice for the indigenous aussies in real need senator jacinta price speaking to fred paul on his monday night show here on adh tv this week <laughs> Suffer the little children. 
all of this stuff matters in Australia, but we live inside a wider world. And in that wider world, there are threats to our security more than ever that could directly impact us. We can't turn away from the Israel-Palestine conflict because it is serious and it could very quickly involve Australia through the AUKUS pact. Prime Minister Albanese meeting with President Biden this week in Washington. Here's how the US media covered that visit. White House, Weisha, uh, good morning. Tell us a little bit about the reception that the Prime Minister will be getting at the White House. Good morning to both of you and good morning to everybody. You can see some of the crowd here, some almost 4,000 people. Um, that includes uh, staffers from the embassy, uh, from the White House, friends and family that are here to greet the prime minister as he makes his way um, for his official visit here at the White House meeting with President Biden. And so this is a very warm reception as is any with a formal state visit. And this is only the fourth time that President Biden has had an official state visit. So um, it really speaks to the importance of the relationship and the way in which he views um, Australia as a critical ally. So some people may wonder about the timing for something like this. Um, all eyes have been focused on um, the Israel-Hamas conflict. The president was there. We can see the secretary of state there. So there's a number of people who, who are in the crowd right now whose primary focus for the past couple of weeks has been what's happening in the Middle East. So right. can you talk a little bit about why now for the state dinner? Well, these state dinners are planned well in advance, and it would not be in the interest of the White House to change the schedule for anybody because of the details that go into this and the fact that two delegations have to coordinate. Um, not to mention the fact that the White House says this is the time to have this meeting because it's not only about what's happening in the Middle East, but this really speaks to um, the America's uh, positioning in the entire world, especially as we look to would-be aggressors, um, namely China. And of course, Australia is a key ally in building up security in the Indo-Pacific region. And all of Australia out in the lawn, <laughs> welcome. Welcome and good morning, or as you would say, good day. You know, it's an honor to welcome you all to the White House as we celebrate the enduring alliance between Australia and the United States. An alliance that's marked by imagination, ingenuity, and innovation. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Prime Minister, today, Australia and the United States continue to stand together, continue to innovate, to push back the bounds that had been in our way and make a giant step toward what could be. President Biden then outlined all the wars in which Australia and the U.S. fought side by side. Together, we're standing with Israel against Hamas terrorism. We're standing with Ukraine against Putin's tyranny. And we're providing and proving that democracy can deliver on the challenges that matter most to people's lives, from climate change to cancer. And today, we're fueling the spark of innovation that has long burned in the hearts of Aussies and Americans. President Biden then concluded with this statement about the state of the alliance in 2023. Mr. Prime Minister, the alliance between Australia and the United States has never been more important than it is today. And we have never 
been more committed than we are today. May God bless our alliance and may God protect our troops. And now it's my great honor to introduce Prime Minister Albanese. Albanese? Albanese? To be honest, I'm not even sure what it is myself. Anyway, his speech started well. Mr. President, when you and I stood together in San Diego in March, the USS Sterrett and the USS Missouri behind us, we were surrounded by the examples of America's power. To stand with you here in Washington, D.C., is to witness the power of America's example. The ideas and ideals that your great democracy was built on. This is at the heart of our alliance, the soul of our partnership, not a pact against a common enemy, a pledge to a common cause, a shared belief that freedom, peace and equality are not just American ideals or Australian values, they belong to all humankind. That is why Ukrainian soldiers are driving Australian-made bushmasters as they drive back an illegal and immoral invasion. And it is why all Australians condemn the atrocities, terror and pitiless brutality of Hamas. And Mr President, we applaud the personal resolve you have brought to this troubled part of the world. You have spoken with moral clarity and you have stood up for a simple principle. The principle that every innocent life matters, Israeli and Palestinian, and that in every conflict, every effort must be made to protect civilians. So the Prime Minister's words point to his government's position that Israel is to be supported, but that excessive force and retaliation for the vile terrorism of October 7 must be proportionate. And therein lies the problem. If Australia had been attacked in the way Israel was, what would be our response? Israel has a population of just under 10 million people. 1,400 were slaughtered in the most psychologically disturbing ways imaginable, and 200 others taken hostage. That would equate to 4,300 Australians. How much restraint would we be willing to show against such an enemy? It would equate to 52,000 Americans. How much restraint would they show? We are asking a lot of Israel, and we tend to think of Israel as big and strong. This is a map of the Middle East. Israel is the tiny red dot in the middle. The rest is the Arab Muslim world in green. Now, it's a horrible dilemma that Israel faces, but it's far more complex than most people realise, I think, when they simply ask Israel to stop the bombing or have a ceasefire. Every ceasefire allows Hamas more time to regroup and plan. Every aid truck that enters presents more risk that these goods will feed and supply Hamas, not the people of Gaza that they were intended for. Hamas is so corrupt that everything must go through them first and they will determine where resources go. And there could be arms in those trucks. They've shown supreme disregard for the welfare of the people of Gaza themselves. The feeling about Israel's response and this question of proportionality is understandable. It's absolutely horrible seeing kids die. This is an awful world of imperfection and injustice that we live in. 
and so I sympathise with the sentiment of many as expressed by a guest on Piers Morgan's UK talk TV show this week. He spoke with Cenk Uyghur, the founder of the highly influential left-wing American online news channel The Young Turks. Cenk, a Muslim, unleashed on Hamas to start with. On Young Turks, uh, we covered uh, the atrocious actions of Hamas right from the get-go, and we condemned it as fully as anyone can possibly condemn it. Because not only are they killing those poor, innocent Israelis that didn't do anything, those little babies and the grandmothers, it's disgusting what they did. But on top of that, they've, they're ruining the Palestinian cause. They've burned the moral high ground to cinders. And then on top of that, they smear all people of Muslim background like myself. And, mm -hmm. and, and then it leashes this, unleashes this bigotry of anti-Muslim bigotry throughout the world that I'm sick of. So screw Hamas and their barbarism, okay? Then he turned to Israel's response. As I said, voicing the feelings of many. I'm going to suggest what to actually do. I'm going to be constructive. Mm. But first, let's look at the unconstructive solution that Israel had. Dropping bombs on residential buildings. 50 ambulance, ambulances have been hit. 10 out of 25 hospitals don't operate anymore. The incubators are about to run out of energy. There's 45 babies that might die today. The parents I just read on CNN are writing the names of the kids on their calves, on their legs. Mm so that if they are killed in a bombing and they're mutilated, they could find their bodies. Imagine writing the name of your child on their legs so that you could find them in the rubble after Israel or any government drops a bomb on them. And I need the West to understand something. Bombs kill people. And do you know how they kill people? They incinerate them alive or their heads explode. So what happened in Israel was a, was a disaster and disgusting. But you have to be equally honest and, it, and equally outraged at the immorality of incinerating babies and grandmothers and aunts and uncles, which is what we're doing right now. America cannot you, Cenk, keep sending you. aid for death and destruction. Enough of let the occupation. End it today. End it today. It's monstrous. That's the Young Turks Cenk Uyghur on Piers Morgan's Talk TV. Sounds pretty reasonable. The problem is that Israel and Hamas are not the same thing, Cenk. If they were, there would have been no Hamas attack from Gaza on October 7 because there would have been no Gaza. Hamas's view of Israel, and it's the view of a lot of Palestinians and a lot of Arabs in the wider Middle East, is that Israel has no right to exist. And this is why many scholars believe there is no moral equivalence between the state of Israel and Hamas, the terrorist group that took control of Gaza 17 years ago, or the Palestinian movement generally. So for the other side of this debate, an excellent long discussion on this week's episode of the Trigonometry Podcast, featuring the neuroscientist, author, podcaster, and popular American public intellectual, Sam Harris. The most obvious error that people will make now is to imagine that body count is the only measure by which the, the moral balance swings, right? So if Israel goes into Gaza and uh, inadvertently kills more people than were killed on their side, they've done, they've done too much by definition, right? Um, that's, just, that's wrong in all kinds of ways, but the, the, 
the obvious way that it's wrong is that it completely ignores what people are actually attempting to achieve on both sides, what kind of world they're attempting to build, what their intentions actually are. What would they do if they had more power? If, if the asymmetric power in the region were reversed, how would, the, how would Hamas behave vis-a-vis -vis Israel, right? Um, and one thing is obvious, Israel for decades, if it had wanted to perpetrate a genocide against the Palestinians, could have done that on any given day. If you reverse that balance of power, and ask what would Hamas do? What would jihadist organizations anywhere do? Uh, they would kill all the Jews. And, they've, and they have told us that ad nauseum. The founding charter of Hamas said that explicitly. It looked forward to a time where, where Quranic prophecy would be realized when the earth itself would cry out against the Jews, where, where the, the rocks and the trees would say, oh Muslim, there's a Jew behind me, come kill him. Sam Harris went on to say that we have to consider what people's intentions are when analyzing these situations. While people think intention is this, is this um, abstraction, intention is the software that everyone is running. Intention is the best predictor of what people will do if they're given an opportunity to do it, right? If they have the power to do it, mm -hmm. if they have the technology to do it. Um, what will a jihadist organization do if it gets nuclear weapons? What will a jihadist organization do if it gets, you know, a, a viable bioweapon, right? We know the answers to these questions. These people have been telling us this for as long as I've been alive and, 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 and in isolated cases, absolutely proven to a moral certainty their commitment to nihilism and massacre. I mean, the, the, the Islamic State, if, if, if you couldn't, if you knew the details of what was happening in the Islamic State and couldn't understand that these people mean what they say and believe what they say they believe, then you're, you're living on another planet. So anyone who's surprised, the only surprise here is that there was an assumption, and a you know, historically understandable assumption, that Hamas was not as extreme as Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Uh, and it certainly seems that some among them are prepared to be that extreme. Harris went on to say that considering whether Hamas is as bad as ISIS or Al-Qaeda is splitting hairs, that the philosophy of holy war, known as jihadism, itself is the problem. We just have to acknowledge that there is a subset of people in the Muslim world who, for whom it is true, as they say of themselves, that they love death more than we love life. We being free, secular people everywhere, Jews, Christians, moderate Muslims, uh, the, there are people who actually want to be martyred and, have their, and see their kids martyred, right? This is not, they're not bluffing. They're, they're perfectly willing to die for the pleasure and, and um, opportunity of killing non-combatants, intentionally killing non-combatants. So that the moral error that people are gonna make now and they've, they've, they're already making it, is to think that when Israel tells people to evacuate northern Gaza and they don't because Hamas is telling them not to do it or it becomes practically impossible and Egypt doesn't let them out, etc. cetera, um, and they drop bombs tra targeting uh, Hamas installations that have been purposefully put next to civilian areas that will cause carnage when, when Israel bombs them, like hospitals and schools and mosques. When Israel bombs those targets and kids die, which is uh, obviously horrible, that is the same thing as 
Hamas jihadists coming in under cover of rocket fire at dawn and murdering babies in their cribs. It's not the same thing, and body count doesn't resolve okay. that disparity. Sam Harris there. The whole episode of Trigonometry is a must-watch. Do check it out. And in other news this week, the United States has finally elected a new Speaker of the House of Representatives in the Congress. The Republicans control the House of Representatives, but a few weeks ago they dumped their Speaker Kevin McCarthy after a small number of Republican House members decided to vote with the Democrats in a motion against him. Mike Johnson is the new Speaker of the House. Now, this role is very different to our Speaker of the House, who's just the person who oversees proceedings in the House of Representatives when it's sitting. The US Speaker does that job, but they're also the leader of the majority party in the House, so it's kind of like our, our Prime Minister, but without the executive power. Of course, in America, it's the President who has all the executive power as the leader of the government. But the Speaker is powerful, there's no doubt. Previous speakers are well known to, for the power that they wielded, like Democrat Nancy Pelosi and Republicans Paul Ryan and Newt Gingrich. And this new guy is a 51-year-old conservative from the state of Louisiana. So pundits say this is a victory for the ideological right wing, Trump-aligned faction of the Republican Party, and a loss for the moderates. Here's how America's Fox News saw it. What we need in this country is more hope. The, the, the people have lost their faith in our institutions. The, 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 their faith is at an all-time low. And, and one of the reasons they've lost it is because the Congress, over the years, has not delivered for the American people well enough. We're in the majority right now. We've gone through a little bit of suffering. We've gone through a little bit of character building. And you know what it's produced? More strength, more perseverance, and a lot of hope. And that's what we're about to deliver to the American people. Well, that sounds promising. He's uh, going to have a tough job bringing the Conservatives and Moderates together. It's the same problem in the Australian Liberal Party and the UK and Canadian Conservative parties. But all it takes is some strong leadership. We are going to speak. We're going to speak with clarity and conviction and consistency to the American people. We're going to tell them what we're for, what agenda we are pursuing, and why it is best for every American. Why it will give them more liberty, opportunity, and security. We're going to speak to that clearly, we're going to act consistently, and we're going to exhibit two things here, trust and teamwork. And this group will deliver for the American people. I said it in the chamber, and I will say it here. We're going to govern well, and I think the people are going to be very pleased with those results. The new Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States, Mike Johnson, speaking to Fox there. And finally this week, a big raspberry to the ABC's Managing Director, David Anderson, who after losing the defamation case brought by Aussie Special Forces Commando and war veteran Heston Russell that we talked about last week, refused to apologise to Mr Russell this week. Mr Anderson was being grilled at a Senate Estimates Committee hearing on a raft of issues the ABC has mired in controversies lately, but he said he wouldn't be apologising to Heston Russell for the reports that implied that Russell and his platoon were guilty of a war crime. Not only should Anderson apologise to Heston Russell, he should apologise to the whole platoon and to the people of Australia who have to pick up the almost two million bucks this thing's going to cost the ABC in legal fees. Heston Russell only got awarded $390,000 but the legal bill is much higher. And in another twist to this tale, the ear witness the US Marine helicopter pilot who claimed that he heard the alleged gunshot, upon which reporter Mike Willisey based his whole defamatory story, has now apologised himself directly to Heston. One Nation's Malcolm Roberts then asked what disciplinary action had been taken against Willisey. 
David Anderson said he wasn't going to take any action. Maybe the government, on behalf of the Australian people, should consider what disciplinary action should be taken against David Anderson. The ABC is a mess. It's off charter, it's out of control culturally, it's failing to do the job it is supposed to do. Massive change is needed, and the attitude displayed by Anderson at this Senate inquiry was not humble, contrite, or apologetic enough to anyone. And on that note, please remember to share this show and let your friends know about us and about ADH-TV. And we'll catch you next week. Have a good one.